Welcome to the OV Build Podcast, Building to Boss. I'm Casey Renner, VP of Executive Networks here at OpenView. This month, we're releasing a special mini-series with female leaders in the enterprise SaaS industry who know the path to leadership is challenging, but aren't willing to let that stop them from building something great. Today, we hear from Jean DeWitt-Grosser, head of North America Revenue and Growth at Stripe. She's responsible for all sales functions, has spearheaded Stripe's enterprise strategy, and drove the launch of their technical sales and product specialist functions. Before Stripe, Jean started her career at Google, where she built and led sales teams at different regions to support the G Suite product. In today's episode, we unpack how to succeed in an engineering-centric company, how Stripe leveraged product-led growth to scale a sales org with a repeatable sales process, and advice she gives on revolutionizing the idea of personalization and sales outreach. All of that and more in this episode of the Build Mini series, Building to Boss. Let's dive in with Jean DeWitt-Grosser. Jean, thank you so much for joining us on the OV Build podcast. We're excited to have you here and talk all things tech and sales and customers and self-serve all wrapped into to one podcast. So what's up? Uh, no problem. So let's uh, dive in here. Your whole career has been in tech and, you know, we're, we're at Google all the way through to, you know, I guess Stripe is considered sort of less of a startup today, but obviously a, a much different size than Google was. So tell us just what that journey has been like and how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah. So I started my career at Google straight from college. And the first product I worked on there was Gmail, which if people remember, was sort of a big change in consumer products at the time. So I worked on that and actually like a support or operations capacity for four years and then went to business school, came back. And that was when I joined what's now the Google Cloud organization. And that was before cloud actually was really even an industry term. And so worked on that for four years, building out sales teams in different regions to support the G Suite product. And then decided after a decade at Google that probably I should jump out of the Google Nest and figure out if I actually knew how to fly. And so went on to be the chief revenue officer of a SaaS communications startup that was about 50 people when I joined to build out all things, go to market for them. And then after that, I made my way over to Stripe where Stripe's COO actually was my first boss back when I was 22 at Google. And so wanted to you know, meet up with her again and, and join Stripe, where I've spent the last five years building out the sales team for the Americas. I was going to say, I feel like Claire, that's Claire, correct? Yes, yes. I feel like she did a great job at pulling some former employees from Google. Yeah, Stripe. well, I think... People tend to follow great leaders, and she is certainly one of them. So, you know, it had always been on my list to work for her again, you know, when I first stopped working for her. That's, that's great. Here you are doing it. Yeah. How big was Stripe when you started? So when I joined Stripe, it was 400 people, and we're a little north of 3,000 now, I think. And so I think that's always interesting because one of the things I see again and again is people constantly thinking that, you know, companies are, quote, late to join. 400 people feels big to a lot of folks, but 
if you are picking, you know, a company that has the potential to be one of those iconic companies in the future, you often find that no matter when you join, you're still early. Even to give an example from Google, I joined Google when it was 2000 people, which to, you know, many probably seemed pretty darn late. And when I left Google, I had been at Google longer than 99.6% of the current employees. So suffice to say, it was not that late. (laughs) Oh my God. And that's also not, I don't even think I could remember a time when I would think Google was that small. At 2,000 yeah. people too. <laughs> so um, kind of going into just quickly diving into sort of Google and what you learned there, what did you learn there kind of about effectiveness and influencing people, especially on the product and engineering side, but just in general, as you moved from there, you know, and learned to fly without the Google Nest? Yeah, there, there are two things that I think Google really taught me. So the first was Google was obviously a very engineering centric culture. And so it really taught me how to be effective in influencing the product and engineering organization when you're you're not a part of that org. And so being able to think through, you know, how do you be a very data-driven go-to-market leader since that tends to resonate with product and engineering folks? How do you really get a very, very strong grasp of the needs of your customers so that you're parlaying them into the product and engineering or to really help them ground their strategy decisions and product development in what people really want? So that was something I really took forward and is still useful to me at Stripe. The other one was, you know, Google really was one of the first companies, I think, to operate at, you know, the scale of the internet. And so you always had to be thinking about if I'm going to do something, how am I rapidly going to take, you know, say a, a prototype of a new you know, way to go to market or organize your team, et cetera, to needing to do that for millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users or customers. So that's sort of the other thing is like constantly thinking about how are you going to take something and turn it into a repeatable motion. And so then when... You know, you mentioned you were you were at your CRO at Dialpad for a little bit and then went on to join Stripe. But what was it about Stripe? I mean, now that you've been there five years, which I feel like these days, this sort of feels like a lifetime in some cases for, for people at companies. But what was it? You mentioned Claire, but what was it about how she described the company that had drew you to them? And certainly they were in a different, you know, different size and whatnot when you did join. But what was it about initially about them? Yeah, I reflected a lot when I was considering another change on what had made me happiest at different points in my career. What was it about that company or the opportunity? And I realized it boiled down to three things. So the first was I really needed to have very strong cultural alignment from a values and mission perspective. And I don't actually think that most companies have really, really strong values that they abide by. They might claim to, but to me, a strong values-driven company is one that has documented their principles and actually uses them as a decision framework on a daily basis. And so Stripe had the operating principles, which these were documented principles that they abide by. And, you know, when I, I knew Claire to be an extremely principled leader, and when I you know, saw John and Patrick in, in any you know, videos at events, I could tell that these were folks with a great moral compass, and we're going to build an organization that was very aligned to that. So that, that was the first thing. The second one had to do with market opportunity. 
So I'm the type of person who wants to work at a company for a decade. And I don't want to switch companies every two years. And in order to do that, you have to believe that the company that you're joining has the potential to continue to grow, you know, into becoming the company that can command, you know, or can drive that type of ongoing growth. And so when I looked at payments, you can argue that that is one of the largest markets in the world, right? (laughs) Every other company's got to generate revenue in order for their market to be large. So I really looked at, you know, is this company a player in a large and growing market where you also can see all sorts of natural adjacencies over time that will enable it to continue to scale? And then the last thing actually was when I reflected that when I first joined Google, you know, Google was founded by these two PhDs. And so they hired a profile of engineer that, you know, was really interested in taking on audacious goals. And so I wanted a company also that was going to hire engineers that were really going to try to, you know, create the, the next wave of technology disruption. And that was important to me because I, I want to be at a company that's a market leader and is always innovative. And that is a competitive advantage for them. And so from what I could tell, it seemed like Stripe was hiring some wicked smart engineers. And so that was likely to be a place where we would, you know, be at the forefront of, you know, the next wave of growth. The payment space. Yeah. And then seems like you, they, you were correct in all of those. It seems like, do you think part of the culture, I and mean, I know that the, the Stripe founders, you know, are, are certainly younger. And I mean, so many tech companies are, but do you think that sort of them and just sort of their age and their, you know, outlook on life and what they wanted to build that they built the company with those cult, you know, having such strong values in it? I honestly think that John and Patrick are just fundamentally wonderful human beings. And they are also two of the most thoughtful people I have ever met. And they also, I would say one of the things that's unique about them is they are extremely long-term oriented. And then, you know, Stripe has been successful enough that when you have, you know, this amount of wind at your sails, you, you know, you have the luxury of being long-term oriented and so, you know, they really take the time to document specifically what it is that they want to build rather than having that happen organically. So I think most leaders, the culture, I think, becomes an organic embodiment of kind of the founder's personality, right? Where John and Patrick have been very thoughtful about there are aspects of their personality that I think they certainly inculcate into our culture. But there are also things where they quite purposefully edit our principles about every 18 months to ask what is it about our current culture that is or isn't supporting the next phase of growth. Actually, to contrast that as an example, so Google had the 10 things we know to be true. And they were on, you know, posted publicly on the internet and they didn't get rid of them until they were, or edit them, until they were obviously obsolete. Whereas, Whereas Stripe, actually, every 18 months has gone back and said, which of these do we need to proactively change because they are no longer supporting the culture that is most likely to make us successful given where we need to go. That's great. I feel like you don't, you don't hear that terribly often, but that sort of ties in an open view. We have one of our values is continuous rapid improvement. So sort of similarly, like what can we constantly be doing and what should we be checking on every few months to make sure we are still on the right track to investing in the best companies? So how yeah. do you look at it? So when you first joined, what was the sales team like? What was <laughs> so sales at Stripe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So first, I think one of the things that's important to know is while we may not have had a formal sales organization until relatively late um, in the company's scaling, John and Patrick were always on the front lines of talking to customers, helping them get live, helping them make the decision. So on some level, Stripe had been doing sales since the get-go. They just had never hired someone with the account executive title. So when I joined Stripe was about six months into hiring people with the account executive title. But as you'd sort of imagine in, in most sort of you know product-led companies, there had been nervousness about what is this you know thing called sales. And if we put people on quota and call people account executives, are we gonna have cultural issues? So we'd done sort of the typical, you know, I think half of the folks we'd hired had sold before the other half were wicked smart people, you know, who were sort of learning things. And so what I came in to do was figure out, you know, this is a company that was going to scale rapidly. How do you create something predictable and repeatable? And when I joined, I would say that it was just, you know, smart people talking to customers and trying to be helpful, but not necessarily figuring out, you know, if you were going to have 100 smart people doing that, how do they all do the same thing? And then also, you know, not as much focus on how do you create, you know, predictable, repeatable pipelines such that we could, as a sales organization, you know, commit to the executive team that, hey, if you want this much revenue this year, next year, the year after, we feel confident we can deliver that for you. So a lot of what I came in to do was help, honestly, the company understand an operating model. That was one of the first things I built out, which is what do you need to believe to be true as far as the number of leads, the rate at which they convert, the average deal size, et cetera, to produce predictable revenue. And then how do I learn from all the great things everybody's doing on the front line today and turn, you know, recognize patterns and turn that into something that I can teach everybody. And so that was sort of year one. And part of that also then was how do you start to, where it makes sense, specialize from a role perspective so that you don't have an account executive who's you know, prospecting while also handling inbound demand and then also getting people to sign and then personally deploying them. You know, yeah. like yeah. At a certain, at yeah. certain point, you jack of all trades isn't going to help you scale either. Yeah. So when was the... And I, you know, we, we dive into it a little further down, but when was sort of the pivot? Was it when you you know, you were hired It sort of did, a, did sales 101 and here's what we need, but going from product-led growth to scaling that org with a repeatable sales process. Yeah. So the realization here was basically, you know, Stripe had been incredibly successful with startup founders and we still are today. And that is an, a very important piece of our strategy that we never want to lose sight of. But if you want to also be able to grow revenue, you know, at triple digit year on year, you need to be acquiring larger customers as well. And so one of the things I quickly figured out was actually we're not, we didn't have inbound demand or repeatable motion with larger companies that would enable us to continue to grow at high rates. And so one of the first things I did was, you know, implement what we called the Buffalo strategy, which was, you know, in sales, people will talk about whale hunting, right? Like getting these massive customers. Well, we did not have a product in 2016 that was ready to go sell to a massive enterprise, but we certainly had one that you could sell to a series C or a series D company, which was what we called a Buffalo. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And so we needed to go and figure out how do we go from, you know, being really excited when TaskRabbit signs a deal with us to getting, you know, 30 task rabbits every single quarter again and again and again. 
So that was sort of the first thing we did was implement our Buffalo strategy. And then each year as the product has matured, we've been able to pursue a slightly larger animal. <laughs> yes. So what animal are you on now? Are you at the whale or is it bigger than a whale? <laughs> We're definitely at the whales. So actually when we first like to play this metaphor fully out, when we first started pursuing whales, we often, the types of deals we would have, we called a fin, which was, you know, you got the little flipper on the whale. You didn't get the whole thing. <laughs> So these days we actually get the whole way up. <laughs> oh my God. That is awesome. I hope there were some there was some like great marketing collateral in the office or on the sales floor <laughs> with these yeah. with these animals on them. So, yeah. <laughs> so how did year so you said kind of that was year one now, you know, and you grew up with these metaphors, Buffalo now on Finn Whale, but how did you specifically scale the sales team at Stripe? Did you know once you did that, was it like, okay, now we're gonna hire two people, and then once we get them on board, it's gonna be three four. Like, what did those steps look like? Yeah. So we had to start getting smarter about segmentation. So, you know, I first realized we had a segmentation problem when you'd have an account executive talking to a company doing, you know, a million dollars in revenue at 9am and a billion dollars in revenue at 10am. Those sales processes are going to have nothing to do with one another. So we've basically each year gone through what we've called an evolution, which was to say, you know, hey, we're now serving a different type of customer as our product has matured and our go-to-market has matured. And so we need to organize around that. So each year we basically added, you know, more specific segmentation, whether that's new segments because we can pursue a larger customer or within the segments, maybe an orientation towards a vertical or a business model so that again, we can get pattern recognition there. And then the other thing that we've done each year that I, I mentioned, right, is, is more role delineation where we start to break out, you know, hey, as you deploy a much, much larger, more complicated user who's ripping out existing infrastructure, you now actually need a specialized team that's technical and can really work with them on that migration versus when we were only selling to Series A companies, you could point them to the docs and, you know, away they go, right? So it's been basically you know, more focused segments each year and more specialized roles each year as we pursue those different types of companies. Got it. I want to jump in a bit about org design. Um, so you came in to sort of, you know, build out sales. What does the team look like now? What are the various, you know, sales roles there? How are they working together? How big is the team now? Basically, if you sort of go across the customer lifecycle these days, you know, we have a team of people purely focused on outbound prospecting, as an example, to, to generate pipeline. Also, you know, folks are qualifying inbound demand that marketing is driving. We then move to our account executive team. Today, we the account executive team, we have or we have a set of account executives that are really, really focused on greenfield acquisition. So Stripe certainly does not have majority market share at this point. We got to go out and get the market. So we've chosen to have teams that can only, you know, hit their target based on net new customer acquisition. And then we have teams and they they also now, as we pursue larger, more complicated customers, will work with solution architects because in a lot of cases you're having to go in and say, hey, you work with another payments provider and here's how we're going to give you confidence that you can migrate to Stripe and, you know, not, not lose money. Then once we've, you know, completed a sale, so we have a contract in place, we have implementation teams who will work with their engineers and their operating teams to have that migration be successful and happen as quickly as possible. 
And then once live, we have teams of account executives that are now working with them because Stripe has, you know, multiple product lines. You know, we've got subscription offering, we've got terminal offering for point of sale, so on and so forth. So those teams will work to expand the account. And then for like our largest users, we also will have a customer success function reporting some of the other, you know, daily operations and how they really realize the full value of working with Stripe. And then, you know, so so that's sort of the life cycle from a role perspective. And then from a segment perspective, we continue to have those roles that only focus on startups. So making sure we're really leaning into all, you know, even pre-revenue startups are on Stripe and successful. And then up into the enterprise space where you then have, you know, sub teams that might be working with, you know, a more of a mid-market enterprise all the way through to teams that you know, have a global account that might have, you know, four different people talking to different parts of that organization to make them successful on Stripe in a coordinated way. Got it. And how many people is that in total, the team now? So in the United States right now, we are a bit north of 200 people. Okay. So we're still small in the scheme of things. Globally, we're a little north of 500. Okay. Still, yeah, but 200 is not as, as large kind of with everything, all the different segments and across the life cycle. It doesn't, you know, feels like you're still doing a lot with not a ton of people, all things considered. Yeah, I would say one of Stripe's original operating principles, which I think we have modified since, but was efficiency is leverage. So we have always been a sales organization that sort of asked ourselves, you know, how do we get as much productivity as we can, you know, out of the org before layering in, you know, the next kind of tranche of headcount. That being said, I think we're also going through a phase of hyper growth right now where we've asked ourselves, hey, is having a sales force that is this efficient actually rate limiting our our growth? And, you know, we're making some pretty darn big investments in our go-to-market functions this year. Got it. What teams... Do sales really work with, you know, outside of say like customer success, obviously, but I feel like that's kind of a common question we always hear too, especially to your point earlier of when there is no sales, sales sort of seems like the the devil to early stage product led growth orgs. And then when they implement them, it's like, okay, but who are they actually working with and how are they working with? In your opinion, who are they actually working with? Yeah. So, I mean, there's the obvious one of of marketing, although I think we have tried to have a deeply embedded relationship with marketing. So we're really aligned on strategy um, and do a lot together around campaigns to make sure that they're integrated. But the the other two that I would say that I think we've tried to, you know, have uniquely strong relationships with at Stripe is one, our data science organization. And so that has helped us be really smart about the different accounts that we target when it comes to outbound prospecting, but also, you know, you still have tons and tons and tons of companies at Stripe, you know, signing up self-service online. And then we want to be smart about who we talk to when we talk to them, what do we talk about, et cetera. So we've tried to really have, you know, a deep analytical orientation within our sales, sales work from the outset. And then the other one, you know, is being very, very integrated with product and engineering. So one of the things that we've instituted at Stripe are what we call operating groups. So I've been chairing our enterprise operating group, 
uh, the EOG, which brings together all the major functional leads, including product and engineering to make sure we're all, you know, aligned on the strategy that we're trying to do. So sales doesn't pursue the types of customers that aren't going to have great product market fit and product is prioritizing, you know, the investments that are going to help us win the next set of customers that we all agree are interesting and relevant to Stripe. And our, our product and engineering teams have also always been great about wanting to talk to customers, you know, getting in front of them. We recently just launched our executive briefing center, which is, is virtual oh, wow. right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, That's part of that again. is, yeah, it's, we're, we've just did our first one last week very successfully. But, you know, through that, we get our product and engineering teams in front of customers as well to help, yeah. you know, the vision and, and show the, the innovation they're planning to drive for our, our prospective customers. That's right. How often do those groups meet? Is it sort of just an ongoing communication or is it like, you know, once a month we're sitting down together and then ad hoc from there? Oh, no, it's much more frequent than that. Okay. So, so it's more of a weekly okay. thing. You know, part of that is just getting everybody on the same page about the strategy and then us being able to say, okay, here are the set of initiatives that are are hardcore cross-functional in nature that we're all going to be working on regularly. Yeah. There's not a day that goes by that I am not talking to multiple product or engineering leaders at our at our company about some insight or strategy or change that we're trying to drive to be more effective. That's great. Yeah, I feel like you sort of have that nailed down. That seems to sometimes be, and again, the companies we talk to are certainly earlier stage, but it's like, how do you work with product and engineering? Because in some cases, some of the engineers don't really feel like communicating outside of looking at the screen, but that seems to tie back into the type of people that you hire and the culture that you've built as well. <laughs> Just hiring good yeah. people. No, it really is. I mean, but I think to your point on culture, right? So like users first has always been another Stripe operating principle. Mm-hmm. And so... I really do think like as, you know, the engineering organization has built out that one of the things that they test for in the folks we hire, you know, on the R&D side of the house is are these people that are deeply curious about what customers actually want, right? Mm -hmm. Versus I'm just going to go, you know, build a widget that I think is intellectually interesting. So if anything, like we have engineers clamoring to get in front of customers all the time and we're like, oh man, how do we... How do we organize this to make it super efficient? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great, though. And here lies the Executive Briefing Center. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> EBC. Solving the, that is great, though, the engineers who want to get in front of customers, too. And I'm sure the customers appreciate it as well. So they can really dive deep into the product, too. So yeah. awesome. Thank you for kind of sharing, sharing all that. I'm always interested in organizational structure and and how people are are collaborating. So kind of back to just focusing on sales itself. When you say transactional sales orgs, what do you mean by that? And how does that relate back to a self-serve sales model? Yeah, transactional sales orgs, I think, you know, that's where you have, it tends to be like a very high velocity sales organization that the sales process is pretty darn rinse repeat. I think for a lot of your kind of straightforward productivity or collaboration software, you know, you can, can get there. It tends to be in the SMB segment as well. Yep. And so that that's where you like really just want, I mean, you want to do this everywhere in sales is to nail your playbook. But for that one in particular, you've got to sort of architect almost every single conversation because they, they can be far more similar. And if you nail that, you can just really, your throughput 
right, will be super high versus, you know, one of the things that's been super interesting for me working at Stripe relative to, you know, SaaS products I'd sold previously is when you're selling, we're really selling a platform, right? And so one of the things about selling a platform is it's inherently more flexible. And so you then really are adjusting your sales conversation to the specifics of that company's business model and their growth goals. And so clearly, we obviously develop playbooks at at Stripe and you want as much replicability as possible. But I find that the Stripe sales motion has to be more consultative than your average sort of more transactional sale because where they will get value from Stripe really depends on is this a company that's like in growth at all cost mode versus we got to get our unit economics in line, you know, and so driving down costs actually, you know, is is key to the sales process. And so that makes it actually a really intellectually stimulating sale for Mm -hmm. Stripe salespeople. And certainly, you know, something that I enjoy. Yeah. How do you sort of, when it comes to personalization and sales outreach, what suggestions do you have for that? And how are you, you know, doing that at Stripe? Versus just not, you know, cold calling and knocking down their doors. Absolutely. So another thing about Stripe when I joined was there was an extreme fear of outbound prospecting. And I think it was because so many of our executives had been on the receiving end of really bad outbound, right? And honestly, bad outbound is brand damaging. So there was a a real concern about that, particularly also given a developer audience. And I should be clear, we still mostly don't prospect to developers, right? Like developers don't want to receive that email from an account executive, but the CFO might, right? And they're used to that. So that was one of the things I think for like product-led companies that we had to help internally educate on, which is... I totally agree with you. Sending a cold email to a developer is a bad idea. (laughs) But sending one to a CEO or a CFO is not, right? Like that is expected behavior. And, And then what was important was the content of that needs to be very high quality, which is when that CFO or CEO opens it, do they get an actual insight? So, you know, me writing a CFO and saying, you know, ooh, you went to Duke, I went to Duke, we should talk to each other. That is not interesting. You know, so that that tactic does not make me buy. So we're not going to do that. But, you know, me or, you know, someone from my team reaching out to a CFO and saying, you know, we analyze your checkout flow and you are only doing six out of 10 normal best practices and as a result, we think you are probably, you know, leaving 1%, 2% of revenue on the table. Would you like to learn more about this? You know, I think the average CFO was going to say yes to that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like the bar that we typically try to hold ourselves to is even if the prospect doesn't reply, are they better off having received that content from us? Okay. I like that. I will now keep that in mind when I am not doing outbound sales outreach, but... That makes a lot of sense. It's very enlightening for me too. (laughs) So on the move from from self-serve to more upstream, because we have a lot of companies who, you know, get to that point where it's like, all right, now it's time to make the transition. What metrics are necessary to start looking at that transition? Yeah, I personally do think receiving some amount of inbound demand from the segment you want to move into is a good indicator that you likely are on having product market fit there. I think if you're people like companies that 
one of the things you see often, right, is like companies start self-serve, they start in the SMB segment, they realize that the, you know, the addressable market of that is not something that's going to result in them being, you know, a $10 billion market cap. And so we've got to move up market. But if you do that, totally cold, right, that's going to be pretty inefficient to do, because the mid market, the enterprise segment is big, you know, and so where do you start? What are the right accounts to target, you know, etc.? So I, I tend to look for, am I getting indications that there is, you know, demand for my product there that I now can start to lean into? So that would be sort of the first thing that I, I look at. Beyond that, one of the things we've done at Stripe is just ver- be very hypothesis-driven in our expansion. So looking at where are we successful today and what might that imply for you know, things that are natural adjacencies to that versus you know, hey, we're really successful with tech companies. Why don't we like go and randomly try to sell into manufacturing firms that are, you know, have been in the market for 60 years, right? Instead, we sort of were like, huh, we're really successful with high growth tech companies, where we also seeing a bunch of digital transformation. And let's pursue those enterprises that, you know, their future success is really actually tied to the internet. So good example would be media streaming companies, right? So that's sort of, I think, the other thing that we've, we've done. Got it. That makes sense. Just go after where you've seen inbound too. So it's not like, not like super, super uh, deep there. But what is the role of revenue operations? Is that a role that you have at Stripe? And, and how does that work with the sales team? Yes. So we have this at Stripe. And it's a, another one where I would say, you know, for product oriented companies that are thinking about sales, you have got to be willing to invest in the sales ops or rev ops function to support your sales team. It, it is immensely helpful in helping your sales team be more productive and get at a lot of things I've mentioned. So a great rev ops organization is going to help you figure out right where you're successful in the market figure out where your current funnel is and isn't efficient. So it's basically this amazing analytical arm to help you you more rapidly discern where you're being successful or you need to improve. And then also strategic arm that, you know, helps you figure out where that next market opportunity is. And you can do this out of the sales organization. We certainly have at Stripe, we hire, you know, sales managers, I would say, who are not only capable of, you know, selling and coaching their sales teams, but also really being strategic thinkers. But, you know, that's a lot to do at once. And so inevitably, one of those two things at any given point will probably be underserved if you're having you know, your sales manager have to do both constantly. So I think like if anything, if we reflect at Stripe, we've probably been, you know, rel- too thin on the RevOps part of it. And particularly now that we are in hyperscale mode, that is that is a function that we are beefing up you know, that much more aggressively because its existence will mean that all of our sellers are much, much better at their jobs. Yeah. And does revenue ops at Stripe, does it sit on the sales team? I know um, we have some companies who it sits on the finance organization. For us, it sits in sales. So uh, we have a revenue officer and, you know, he has all the sales. He also has all the marketing and then rev ops under that, which ties it all together. But we also within the finance org have what we call growth FMS, which is growth finance and strategy. And so that is sort of like their finance, RevOps's finance counterpart. So we always talk about like, what makes us successful, I think is the triumvirate of finance, RevOps and sales all being in the same room together every time we make strategic decisions. Okay. 
My last question sort of on the the sales side of the house is, I know that Jabba recently announced an expanded partnership with Stripe and is just deploying Stripe capital. When you think about growth and partnerships at Stripe, how do you identify businesses to partner with? I mean, one of the things that I love about, you know, working on Stripe is, you know, our product basically helps these companies make more money, right? So when I, when we work on partnerships, whether it's with, you know, Jobber, Shopify, Zero, Salesforce, Commerce Cloud, right? In all those cases, we're effectively selling them revenue, right? Which is you've built this amazing SaaS product typically, And now you can augment both your revenue streams and your customer stickiness by adding payments, adding capital, adding treasury, et cetera. And so, you know, we basically look at does their product and then the customers that they're acquiring lend itself to, you know, wanting multiple of these Stripe products to distribute. And then today, I think one of the things that that we're working on also is like, how do we really help these partners distribute that? Because, you know, being able to distribute capital to your customers as a SaaS company is, is a relatively new motion for your average. Your average SaaS company these days is having to become on some level of fintech. And so Stripe is the actual fintech. And so we should be amazing at helping Jobber understand how to market, sell, et cetera, you know, capital to its base. And I think that's like an industry transformation that Stripe is helping drive right now. Okay. You've talked a lot about kind of the leadership and the culture at Stripe and, you know, how Claire was such a great leader and you had wanted to work for her. I guess, you know, in your eyes, what makes her such a great leader and then what makes a great leader in general? Yeah. I mean, what made Claire a great leader, in my opinion, was always, you know, she is an incredibly savvy business strategist and you know, great at affecting change. But she is also an incredibly human leader. And I thought that that was always impressive and unique to be able to do both of those at the same time. And so that, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to work for her repeatedly throughout career is I not only learn from her about how to drive business outcomes, but I also, you know, learn how to build incredibly high performing, engaged, happy, you know, by the way she does the people side of things. Yes. What advice, I mean, you are a new leader arriving at Stripe, but what advice do you have for new leaders joining organizations? I think my biggest advice is you need to be intellectually curious and be in learning mode. So when you come to an organization, what you need to do is as quickly as possible, determine what of your playbook and your sort of existing view on how to run things is going to be relevant here and what you're going to need to discard or rethink. And so I think the mistake that leaders can make is either coming in and immediately trying to roll out their playbook without realizing sort of where it might need to be different or, you know, taking too long to actually bring, you know, what they know to bear on the organization they've just joined. Got it. And then what advice do you have for people looking to be internally promoted? To be internally promoted, my litmus test is always, I guess if we're talking about being promoted from IC into manager, is when I announce this to the people who yesterday were your peers, will they all say, oh my God, no brainer, you know, I'm, I'm so excited. And if the answer to that is yes, then you're ready for the job. And so how do you, how do you make the answer to that yes? Well, 
typically you start doing the job you want. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so a good example of this is often when account executives are interested in becoming sales managers, we will have them increasingly help drive aspects of the, the team's forecast call. Or as we onboard new employees, they will take on a bigger share of, of mentorship. Or as we need to roll out a new playbook or you know, do something that improves the team's operation, they will take on that project. So we basically try to have people demonstrate that they can do the skill that is going to be part of their core job before they actually get that job. Okay. And then last question for you before the rapid fire questions, what key business trends have you seen as a result of the pandemic? And, you know, the way that people have changed how they work. Yeah, I mean, the big one, I, Stripe has been sort of fortunate to, I think, be on the upside of, of COVID, but is the rapid shift of commerce online. So, you know, you already had that trend happening. I think our point of view is that COVID has pulled that industry trend forward by at least a year, if not more. So I think, you know, as you have more and more commerce online, then that's going to also unlock, you know, more of the types of models that we were just talking about with Jobber, right? Where when Jobber gets more people doing their payments online rather than offline, you now have, you know, data from the online payments that you can then use to do things like loans or help them open bank accounts or whatever the case may be, right? So, so that shift just sort of like unlocks other product opportunities. Got it. And then, yeah, so last last five questions. Who's your female role model and why? <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound sound boring is, since we've talked about is it. Claire? Throughout, <laughs> it, it, it is, has been Claire. I, throughout my career, have, you know, very closely followed her for that reason. And I continue to look up to her today. But that's fantastic, though. And to get to work for somebody who is your role model, that just really speaks to her leadership style, too. So I think we a lot of big shout out to Claire on this podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> what, what advice do you have for women beginning their careers? Maybe two things. So one is a lot of times people talk about the importance of having a sponsor, which is another thing that Claire was for me, right? So somebody is really going to help accelerate your career because they see the value you can provide. When I first became a people manager two years into my career, which is pretty darn early, most people who are 24 aren't people managers. And that's because Claire took a risk on me. So I think you have to find people who are going to be willing to take risks on you because they see your potential. And there's a big difference between, you know, working for somebody who is truly your sponsor and someone who is just your mentor. I think that has been a cornerstone of my career is, you know, I've been fortunate to work for quite a few people, male and female, who who really sponsored me. And then there were times in my career where I didn't have that and, you know, had like a stark contrast in now how I had to go out and find other ways to create opportunity on my own. So I think that's one. And, I, and then I think the other one is like finding a situation where you are in an organization where it doesn't have to be your direct manager, but you do have a role model that you can look up to. So that's been something where sometimes there were, were organizations I was in where I didn't necessarily have that, that clear role model, but you know had folks within the company more broadly that I could still turn to. Yeah. It's funny you said sponsorship versus mentorship. I was talking to a woman who's actually on the podcast as well. And she talked a lot about that and the difference between having a sponsor versus a mentor. So very in line uh, with what she had said. 
you know, you talk about how Clara was a great leader, but how as a leader, do you think your team would describe you? And <laughs> okay. and we, we did survey them. So hopefully it aligns. No, <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I, I like, I'm not good at the whole pick one thing. You can pick a couple. This isn't, yeah, don't worry. You can also pick a couple. There's no right or wrong answer. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that my team appreciates about me is that I'm someone who sets very high expectations, but I'm also very supportive in really helping people achieve them. So sort of having both sides of that coin of being one of the most demanding bosses that people have ever worked for, but also being someone who really, really, really will bend over backwards to help people meet those demands. And then I think the other thing that people appreciate is being someone who can operate at 30,000 feet, but also really, really understands the details at the ground level as well. Yeah, I got that. I asked James. No, I'm kidding. I didn't. I didn't ask him. So, <laughs> but I'm sure he would say that. <laughs> I'll ask him separately and see what he says. No. What is your favorite city outside of San Francisco? Oh man. So I, this is, I think COVID for everybody has sort of like made, brought this question to the forefront. Literally at dinner last night, my husband and I were discussing, <laughs> you know, Hey, should we live somewhere else? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. And so, I, so I don't have an answer for you, but what we agreed we should do is come up with five cities we thought might be interesting to live in. And then, you know, a number of selection criteria, you know, it's very typical. We're going to turn it into a spreadsheet, but, you know, to, to, to determine which city outside of San Francisco we might actually be super interested in living in. So, you know, happy to share the spreadsheet we develop on a future podcast. I actually <laughs> feel like I could use that as someone who's trying to figure out like where I might like to live. That spreadsheet could be very helpful. So, so keep me posted on that. And then yeah. um, what is one app you can't live without? I mean, I am still a hardcore Gmail loyalist. I <laughs> adore that product. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 know I still... Yeah. You were, you work there. You are definitely, I can see where it has a special place in your heart. Yes, it does. I too am a big Gmail user. So I don't know if that's the app. I I think Waze might be the app I couldn't live without, but but Gmail is a close second too. So awesome. (laughs) Well, Jean, thank you so much for talking through, you know, all things sales at Stripe. The Stripe organization certainly sounds like a fantastic place to work. And yeah, we're good. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the OV Build podcast, Building to Boss. We hope you learned as much as we did. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to stay up to date with all the new episodes. If you're looking for more open view content, follow me, Casey Renner, on LinkedIn. See you next time here on OV Build.